Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Colossians chapter 3, uh, we're going to spend uh, the sermon. The sermon is actually going to be on verse 16, Colossians 3.16, but for the sake of context and continuity, we're going to read the whole paragraph. Um, most of it is printed on the back of your bulletin, but we're going to read verses 12 through 17. So if you have your Bibles there with you, if you want to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to do so, Colossians 3.12 through 17. We're going to read this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together Uh, everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, uh, with thankfulness rather, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, uh, many of us Presbyterians, uh, we like to talk a lot about the 16th century Protestant Reformation. We like to talk about that a good deal, and that's with good reason. You know, we understandably, if you know anything about the Reformation and, and what has happened since then, you know, it's, it's not, not a bad thing, not without reason that we like to talk and think much about the great recovery of that uh, gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone. You know, imagine the darkness that this world would still be in if that great doctrine of the gospel had not been uh, brought back into the light and brought back into prominence in in the church. That that doctrine is often called the the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. In some ways, you don't even you don't really have a church. We talk about the three marks of the true church. Well, without the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, you might have a lot of things, but a church isn't one of them. So we, we, we talk about that with, with good reason. Uh, we, you might think about the fact that around the time of the Reformation, one of the, one of the hallmarks of it, even the things leading up to it, was having the, the Word of God available in the common language of the people. We, we, we take this for granted, that we have multiple copies of the Bible on our shelves, most of us, that we can read whenever we want. The people back then, most of them couldn't even read, and they were kept in, in ignorance in some ways, on purpose. They weren't allowed to read their Bible. They weren't expected to study it for themselves and to hear it even in their own language. They were supposed to kind of take the church's word for it and, and, and take the pastor, uh, the priest rather, the priest's word for it. And so that's a great thing that, that had a lot to do with the Reformation and what God did during that. We think of the reform of worship, the reform of the Lord's Supper. In particular, all these things are hallmarks of the Reformation, but one of the things that we might not think about much, uh, one of the things that we might might not give much notice to, is that the Lord Jesus used men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others uh, to do a lot of things. But one of the things He used them to do that we might not think about is reforming the worship of the church, and in particular, reforming the singing of God's people in worship. You know, some of the Protestant reformers and their heirs in the centuries following that. Uh, we, we, we know that they, they often pen many, many confessions of faith and catechisms. We're going through one of them right now on Sunday nights, the Heidelberg Catechism. 
And those, those confessions and catechisms uh, were and still are being used to teach and instruct believers from the youngest of ages in the what we call the essentials of the Christian faith and life. I mean, they've stood the test of time. Those catechisms have been around for hundreds of years, and they're still being used with great effect and edification for God's people. But a lot of those reformers also wrote hymns. They also wrote a lot of hymns, and some put together Psalter hymnals to be used in the singing of God's people in worship on the Lord's Day. Martin Luther, you might know, Martin Luther wrote dozens of hymns. And we sing one of them at least once a year on Reformation Sunday, but probably more than that. Uh, you might know a lot of the, the verses, but even by heart, a mighty fortress is our God. And you might know that's, that's based on Psalm 46. Martin Luther wrote that hymn uh, based on Psalm 46, and we still sing that hymn many times in many places in the church throughout the world to this day. So the reformers that you know put their lives on the line, they thought a lot about a lot of things, and one of those things that they worked a great deal towards was the reformation of, of singing in worship. They didn't think of it as a light, a small thing. It wasn't something that was too little for them to spend their time and energy upon. Uh, they spent a great deal of thought and, and effort and energy on that topic. And so I ask you this morning, how much thought... How much thought do you give, do we give, to the songs that we sing in worship? And when you do think of it, what, what kinds of things do you think about, about the songs that we sing? How important are the songs that we sing to you in living the Christian life? How should we decide what kinds of songs we ought to sing and ought not to sing in worship together on the Lord's Day? Are the standards for worship music primarily aesthetics things that we happen to enjoy or prefer? Or are the standards scriptural? Do we judge the songs we sing by the scriptures according to God's word? Should we be asking primarily whether or not a song pleases us or whether or not a song is pleasing to God? These are just some of the things that the Apostle Paul addresses for us here in this brief text in Colossians 3.16. You know, in this chapter, we read a great deal of the chapter not just the one verse we're going to focus on. In chapter 3, this is kind of the practical application section of the epistle to the Colossians. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, here's the gospel in a sense, I'm oversimplifying, but in the first two chapters, here's the gospel, this is Paul's pattern. Chapter 3 is, now here's how you live in light of it. Here's how your life should change and be marked differently because of the gospel of Christ and your faith in him. And so he talks about things like mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the body, the old ways of living that we used to live before we knew Christ by faith. And he says, not just to put those things off, but to put on, put on other things, things such as kindness, humility, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as Christ has forgiven us. Verse 14, he says, above all those things, put on what? Love which is the bond of perfection. And then he says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts together. He's not just saying let the peace of Christ rule in your heart individually. He's saying let the peace of Christ rule among you. Let that be the thing that decides all of our disagreements. The peace of Christ be manifest in his church. But then in verse 16, look at what he says. In addition to all that, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So as believers in Christ, we must see to it that the word of Christ has a place in everything that we do as a church. That might sound like an overstatement, but it really isn't. The word of Christ has to inform our fellowship together. It should be a part of our of our conversations. Uh, we are to speak the word of Christ to each other. And as Paul says here, we're to sing the word of Christ to each other in worship. You know, it's not too much to say that, in, at least in some sense, the ministry of the word of God in the church extends to our singing, or at least it should. And so the songs that we sing together in church on the Lord's Day matter a great, they should matter a great deal to us. We should think of it as one more way that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. And so we're going to look at three things from this short verse. The first thing that Paul tells us is that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then he gives us two basic ways that that is to take place. So the first thing we see here is that he tells us in verse 16 that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, the primary sense that Paul is saying this is a, is a corporate one. When he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, the you there is plural. In English, it's hard to, to convey that very clearly. You know, you, you might think of the word y'all if we were from the South. Y'all is plural. You all, right? Well, that's really what he's saying. Let the word of Christ dwell in all of you together. Uh, the idea here is not just your own personal devotional time in, in the Word of God, reading and studying the Bible, although that certainly is a good thing. In fact, what Paul says here presupposes that that's taking place, doesn't it? It's hard to let the Word of Christ dwell among us if we're not spending time in God's Word as individuals and as, and as families. It presupposes, what Paul says here presupposes that you're going to be spending some time in the Word of God. And so I ask you this morning, do, do you spend time in the Word of God on your own? Do you spend time in the Word of God on a regular basis? I'm not saying when it has to be, not micromanaging, it has to be in the morning with your coffee, it has to be, in, doesn't, that doesn't matter. Do you spend time in God's Word? Do you delight, as the psalmist says, in the Word of God? Do you make time to read through the Bible, to become familiar with its contents, to seek to understand the doctrines that are taught there in its pages? Do you spend time after the sermon or even before the sermon reading the text, thinking about what was said after the sermon and reflecting upon it that you might benefit from it? Or is the only time you get your Bible off the shelf when you're on your way to worship on Sunday mornings? It's often been said, you know, if you treat your Bible like you do how you eat, if you only ate a meal once a week, you'd be in trouble. And what does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Remember the psalm that we read this morning in our Old Testament reading in Psalm 1? David says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates. Now meditates... We use that word in a different way in our society these days. You think of somebody sitting sitting down and it, meditating is to think about it. It's, it's, it's to kind of chew on it, to digest it, to really think about what the Word of God says. He, he meditates on it, on God's law, day and night. He thinks it. He doesn't just read the Scriptures. He thinks about them. 
He thinks about what, what, what they mean, what they're saying, how they apply to his, his or her life. That's what we're supposed to do. We have to take time to think about the Word of God. And that's, that's the way of blessing, isn't it? It's what the psalmist says we saw this morning. The way of blessing is not, is to not be walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in their way or sitting in their seat. It is to positively delight in the law of God and meditate upon it day and night. And so I asked this morning, where is your delight? We all have to ask ourselves, what things do you delight in? There's a lot of good things, a lot of things that we have every reason to delight in. Family, we delight in our families. We might delight in certain forms of recreation. We might delight in your work. All good things. But do you delight in the Word of God? The things that you delight in will inevitably be the things that you devote your time and attention to. If we delight in God's law and God's word, we will spend time in God's word. If you think about it, Psalm 1 that we just read this morning, it's really saying the same thing, or I could reverse this. It's saying the same thing that Paul says in Romans 12, 1 to 2. Romans 12, 2, Paul says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Psalm 1. Paul certainly knew Psalm 1. Maybe he had that in the back of his mind when he wrote this. Don't be conformed to the world around us, the, the wicked, the scoffers, the, the sinners. Don't be conformed to that, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what does that renewing of your mind look like? What's the goal of having your mind renewed, having your life transformed? If you want your life changed, you need the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God to accomplish that. And what does a life change look like? He says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, on our own, none of us naturally, on our own, think of God's will as good and acceptable and perfect. We all have our own preferences and things that we like the way that we think is the right way, what does the Bible say? There's a way that seems right to a man, but at the end it leads to death. Even in our singing, as we're going to look at later on in the sermon, even in the songs that we sing, we have to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good and acceptable to him, and good and acceptable because of that to to us. The person who walks in the counsel of the wicked is going to find themselves being conformed to the world where the one who delights and meditates upon God's word, even on his law, is the one who will be, over time, transformed by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. Well, see, Paul gives us two different ways that the word of Christ is to, is to dwell richly among us. And the first one is teaching and admonishing one another. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's one of the ways you and I are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And so I'll say this. Did you know that you have a part to play in the teaching ministry of the church? You're not spectators. God, God wants you to learn both for your own edification as well as for someone else's. Now, I know that James 1 or James 3 1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Everybody isn't meant to be in the office of teacher or pastor or elder. Uh, that, that hinges on the ability to teach, among other things. 
But even so, there is a kind of teaching that is to be going on between God's people in the church. There's a kind of counseling or admonishing that is to be going on between God's people in the church. The kind of counseling that that the pastor and the elders might never get to do. You might be the only person who knows what someone else in the church is going through or what their particular questions or struggles are. Maybe God puts you in their life or vice versa, frankly, so that you might have the word of God to bring to bear on their situation. Maybe you've gone through something similar that someone else in our church is going through and you know you you somehow God has taught you the way that his word applies to that situation. There is a kind of teaching one another that must go on among the members of God's church in order for us to be a healthy and growing church body. And just as this presupposes spending time in the word of God individually, this also presupposes that we're going to spend time together. It's hard to teach and admonish one another if you're never with one another. And that goes for Sunday mornings as well as other times during the week. We have to be a part of each other's lives in order for that to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful when I see so many of you spending time outside of these walls together over a meal or over helping someone or all those kinds of things. That's what a family does, and that's what the church is meant to be. When you spend time as a part of each other's lives, you're going to find yourselves with God-given opportunities to bring the Word of God to bear on someone else's life. You might bring God's Word to bear on their struggles with doubt and sin. You might bring God's Word to bear on someone's questions and misunderstandings. You might bring God's Word to bear on someone else's weeping or rejoicing. All those kinds of things God gives you opportunities to do. And frankly, young, younger believers, either in age or in maturity, uh, need the counsel of older senior saints who have learned the Word of God over the years, who have been there and done that. The younger saints among us, again, not just many young people, can benefit much from the God-given wisdom and insight and experience of those who have walked with the Lord in the light of His Word over the years. This also means, those two words Paul uses, we all need, every single one of us, pastor included, need the teaching or the doctrine and the admonition that's counseling or sometimes warning of each other. We need the teaching and the admonishing of one another. So may may the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another to our mutual edification and growth in grace. And then Paul gives us one more way that the word of Christ is supposed to dwell among us. And how is it to dwell among us? Richly. He means it's supposed to be prevalent. And what's that second way? That's by our singing. We are to let the word of Christ dwell among us richly in our singing. How many of us ever give that much thought when you think of our singing? Paul writes that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, quote, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We are to sing God's word according to scripture here. Now, this uh, the first thing this implies is that the songs that we sing in worship must have scriptural content. Scriptural content. To put it a different way, there must be a lot of Bible in our songs. And a lot of the Bible in our songs, not just one or two little parts. And the songs that we sing must have sound biblical content. Have you ever sang a song in church? Hopefully not this one, but... You know, you've been somewhere and you start reading the words to the song and you think, what in the world 
is this even saying? I have, have seen songs and I've refrained from singing them that have had no doctrinal content, that made almost no sense, that certainly weren't based upon any scripture passage I could think of in God's word. And I have to say that much of what passes for praise music in our churches today is utterly lacking in this regard. There is no biblical content, seemingly that I can find. You know, many of the more popular praise songs and choruses today have almost no biblical content, and often the content is in one way or another even unbiblical. It's bad enough to not have any Bible in it, but to contradict what God's Word says in song is a dangerous thing. And if that's the case, is it really any wonder that we often struggle with a lack of maturity in the faith when all we have to fall back on are mindless praise choruses that have little to teach us of Christ and his word? And notice, too, the kinds of songs that Paul tells us to sing. He says that we should be what? Singing, he gives three different types, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, there's a lot of disagreement among the commentators. If you were read, read up on this passage uh, some will say that all those three kinds of hymns uh, or songs are different categories in the Psalter. They'll say that psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are really referring to things just in the book of Psalms. Now, I'm not convinced by that because he uses the word psalms in the text. So I think he's got other things in mind. But uh, either way, think of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. They're in the prison in Philippi. They've been arrested on false charges, all they were doing was preaching the word of God. And in Acts 16.25, it says they were singing hymns, same word it's in our text here, singing hymns to God and praying. Now, were they singing psalms? It's possible, we don't know, but it uses the same word that we have in our text. They were singing hymns. Maybe there were some early Christian hymns. Maybe they were based on the psalms. We don't know. I'm certain they were glorifying to Christ uh, and were pleasing to him now, Paul certainly knew the Psalms, didn't he? Paul grew up in the in the synagogue, singing and praying, and reading the Psalms, and so maybe the Psalms he sang were partly from the the Psalter. Maybe they were informed by the Psalms. What about uh, the the spiritual songs? Revelation fifteen three. We saw that verse last week. We looked at Revelation fifteen last Sunday, and there it says the saints in heaven were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song, same Greek word that Paul uses here. In verse 16, for songs, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now we see these examples of these kinds of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in the scripture. Now, whether or not all three kinds of songs have uh, their roots in the psalms, I think one thing should be clear. I'm not arguing here for exclusive psalmody, but I would say this, and some do. I would say this, the fact that Paul mentions psalms in particular We should be singing psalms. Even if we don't sing all psalms, which I'm not advocating for here, we should make it our practice whenever possible to sing the psalms in our worship. Now, now why is that? Well, there's a a lot of reasons for that. They're the only songs we have that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the psalms, which are songs, the psalms were the songbook of Israel. And frankly, they're still the songbook of the church today. They're the only songs we have that are scripture. That we can, without any hesitation, affirm everything taught and said in them. You don't have to look at the psalms when we're singing them and wonder, I wonder if this is scriptural. It's scripture. It's God's 
word. We should be singing psalms whenever we can in our worship. You know, I, I've read a number of books in my years of ministry on church growth. Uh, obviously, I haven't read enough. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of those books, if you know about them, what do they focus on? You might be surprised, you might not be. I don't know that any of them that I've really read have focused on the preaching of the word. They focus on the music. And you know what? Not a single one of them have ever said, you should sing psalms. Not a single one that I can think of has even come close to saying that. They say, sing things that get people in the door. Not things that edify, not things that are scriptural or that are from the psalms. I think that's telling. Whenever possible, in in the worship of God on the Lord's Day and in our own homes, we should make it our practice to read the psalms. We should pray through the psalms. The psalms, many of them, are prayers and songs. We should preach through them, and we should even sing them. You know, frankly, that used to be a lot more common than it is in our day. In his commentary on this verse, William Henriksen writes the following. He says, It has been said that next to Scripture itself, a good Psalter hymnal is the richest fountain of edification. Next to Scripture itself, a good Psalter hymnal is the richest fountain of edification. Not only are its songs a source of daily nourishment for the church, but they also serve as a very effective vehicle for the outpouring of confession of sin, gratitude, spiritual joy, rapture. They are a tonic for the soul and promote the glory of God. They do this because they fix the interest upon the indwelling word of Christ and carry the attention away from that worldly cacophony by which people with low moral standards are being emotionally overstimulated. There's a quote. Now think about that. The Psalms, if you've ever read, and I know many of you have, read through the Psalms. It'll take a while. It's it's the longest book in the Bible, 150 Psalms. Read through them and notice the wide variety and spectrum of things and experiences and life situations that they address. How many of the Psalms are laments? It's probably the most common category of psalms in the entire book. Laments. In other words, the psalmist and the people of God going through hard times, even going through uh, exile, as, as in, some way, in some ways chastisement uh, for their sin and idolatry. But, and they're equipped to worship God even in those kinds of times. If all of the songs we sing are always happy, clappy songs with such little doctrinal content, What happens when life gets hard? How do you worship God in those times if you don't have the Psalms there to guide you in your worship and even in our our singing? Again, the Psalms are the only scripture, only songs that we have that have the claim of being inspired by God and scripture. And it's not too much to say that there's a teaching aspect of the songs that we sing in worship. Letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly in our singing is very closely related to what Paul said in the first part of the verse when he talked about teaching and admonishing. I hope that you are edified and and built up in the faith by the songs that we sing, that you look at the words and think about the words you're singing as we sing. Matthew Henry, that great Puritan Bible commentator, says of this verse, he says, singing of psalms is a teaching ordinance as well as a praising ordinance. There's a lot of instruction in this in the songs that there should be. A lot of instruction in the songs that we sing. Think about the book of Psalms again. There is a vast treasure, a storehouse 
of the doctrine of Jesus Christ found in the book of Psalms. You might not realize this. I hope that many of you do. The Psalms speak of Christ constantly. The Psalms talk about Christ all through the book. We don't have time this morning to go through all this in detail, but I've just picked out a few to highlight for you, and you can look at these on your own. These are not in order in the Psalms. But Psalm 22, Psalm 22 speaks of and and prophesies of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ 1,000 years before he was even born. In great detail, in fact, Jesus Christ quoted, yelled, verse 1, from the cross. What did he say there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes verse 1 of Psalm 22 on the cross. There in Psalm 22 and verse 16, it speaks of his hands and feet being pierced. In fact, it says it in the first person. They have pierced my hands and feet. David never had his hands and feet pierced. He was speaking prophetically of Christ, his son, his greater son, and his Lord. Psalm 16 speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, saying that, that, that God would not abandon his soul to Sheol or let his body see corruption. The New Testament writers quote Psalm 16 and interpret it for us as referring to Christ's resurrection from the dead. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 speaks clearly of the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father. When it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You might know if you're here for Pastor Gary's sermon a while back, that's the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in all the New Testament. The New Testament writers quote Psalm 110.1 more than any other verse in the Old Testament. Sounds like Christ's ascension was rather important to them, and it should be to us. It's just a few things, a few different psalms out of all those 150 psalms that talk about Christ in some way. Read through your New Testament. There's a homework assignment. Read through your New Testament, and maybe your, maybe your Bible has the cross-references in the middle or at the bottom of the page showing you if it's a quote. Notice how many times the, the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. That should be instructed. But notice even more how often they quote the book of Psalms. They quote the book of Psalms constantly. Jesus quoted the book of Psalms constantly. Jesus quoted Psalm 110.1 to prove his own divinity. He said, if he's his son, how does he call him his Lord? Because he says, David says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. Jesus was saying, how is someone who's just the son of David going to sit at the right hand of God? He's showing that he, from that psalm, he proved his own divinity. The apostles constantly quote the book of Psalms. Read through the book of Romans alone. Just read Romans, 16 chapters, and notice, note, how often Paul quotes the Psalms throughout the book. Now, what does that tell you? Now, by God's grace, that probably means that Paul, having grown up in the synagogue, he sung the Psalms a lot. He knew the book of Psalms. He sang it. He read it, he heard it read, and he heard it sung. So they were deeply ingrained in him. And so when when Christ converted him by his grace on that road to Damascus, suddenly all those psalms took on a whole new note. They took on a whole new significance for Paul, and he realized, no doubt, what they really meant and who they were really talking about. And so when he was writing all these epistles, it just came out of him. Paul taught and admonished by 
the Psalms. He, he shows us what he tells us to do. He exemplified it himself. There is a treasure trove of gospel doctrine and comfort for your edification and mine to be found in the book of Psalms. And so we should read them, we should pray them, we should study and preach them, and we should, not, not last but not least, we should sing them whenever we can. And what does Paul, how does Paul say to do that? With thankfulness in our hearts to God. Who are we singing to? That's a trick question, right? Who are we singing to first and foremost? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then secondarily, we're singing for ourselves and for each other. We're singing the word of Christ to ourselves and to each other when we sing it to God first. So let us make every effort to sing songs in worship that have biblical content so that we might, in our singing, do what? Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and be better equipped because of that to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Amen.